Well, welcome back to our New Testament survey. We are, as the name implies, surveying the New Testament. So we're working our way through the New Testament uh, in broad brush strokes. We're looking at one book each week. So we're working our way through the New Testament one book at a time. As we look at each book, we obviously can't dig into all of the details, but we're looking uh, to see uh, the major themes and ideas and theology that's presented in that book uh, and, and why and, and how it uh, applies to the church today. So this evening we are in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. Now as we began this New Testament survey, of course we uh, had done an Old Testament survey and then we moved into the New Testament. We began with the Gospels, the four uh, Gospels which present the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Christ uh, and various uh, theological themes related to that. And then we looked at the book of Acts which was a, a historical narrative of the early church during the time of the apostles. Now we're looking at the epistles, the, the letters in the New Testament. Now we call them epistles because they are slightly different than a regular letter. Uh, if I were to write a letter to Paul and mail it to him, it would be a communication from me to him, not intended really for anyone else. The epistles are slightly different because while they may be written to a church or to an individual, uh, they are generally intended to be read by a wider audience. Uh, and so, uh, obviously, they're recorded for us in Scripture and preserved so that we can read them. But even at the time, they were meant uh, to be read by others. And so we see that even here at the beginning of 2 Corinthians uh, in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. So that's who he's writing the letter to, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. So, this is not just intended for the church in Corinth. This letter is meant to be read more broadly than that. That's the nature uh, of an epistle. The other thing that makes epistles unique is that there is some reason why they were written. There's some occasion uh, that caused the author to write the letter. And so as we read them, we have to try and discern what was the situation that was going on uh, that caused Paul or Peter or John or whoever to write this letter? What, what were they addressing in the life of the church that they thought they needed to pin uh, this communication to them? This letter, obviously, is written by the Apostle Paul, as it says there in verse 1. Uh, this is what we call 2 Corinthians. It's actually his fourth letter uh, to the church in Corinth. Uh, he wrote his first letter probably sometime in 54 AD. He mentions that letter uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, then he wrote what we call 1 Corinthians uh, in 55 AD. And then between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there's another letter which we'll see mention of tonight that we don't have. Uh, some call that his tearful letter or his severe letter. He was addressing some issues of discipline in the church and apparently uh, had to get a little rough with them. And we'll see that as we work our way through uh, this letter this evening. So what was the occasion that caused Paul to write this letter? Well, if you think back to 1 Corinthians, uh, this is an ongoing issue that we're dealing with. There had been division in the church, if you'll remember. Uh, they had 
factions that were kind of setting themselves against one another. And now some people have come into the church there in Corinth uh, calling themselves apostles or sometimes known as super apostles. Uh, and they're teaching some things. They have very charismatic personalities and they have been um, saying some bad things about Paul and about his ministry. Uh, and so the church is, is kind of a mess. And you'll also remember from 1 Corinthians that they had uh, some sexual immorality happening in the church. A man was uh, having a relationship with his stepmother. Uh, and so Paul had to address that. The church was not doing anything about it. They were actually glorying in the fact that they were not doing anything about it. Uh, and so Paul had to reprimand them. And we'll see that the letter that he wrote between First and Second Corinthians, he had to reprimand them very strongly uh, and call them to repent. And it appears that the majority of them have done so. So as he writes this letter, uh, one of his primary purposes is to defend his apostleship defend his authority as an apostle, uh, but also to address those within the church that have not yet repented of that situation. Uh, and so and we'll see both of those things. There's a third purpose as well, one that we see kind of overarching through many of Paul's letters. Uh, if you'll remember from the book of Acts, there had been a famine and some persecution in Jerusalem and Judea. And so Paul was concerned uh, to gather a collection of money from the various Gentile churches to take back to Judea to help those who were in need. So that's part of the purpose of this letter too, is to encourage them to prepare that gift uh, before he comes to collect it. Uh, so that's really the purpose uh, of why, the occasion for why he wrote the letter. The purpose that we'll see as we work through it is that in contrasting himself and his ministry against these so-called super apostles, Paul is going to draw attention to the role of suffering in the life of a Christian, uh, particularly that his ministry marked by suffering does not make him less of an apostle, but actually shows that his ministry is in alignment with Christ who suffered and died on the cross. Uh, and so he's going to encourage the church to embrace uh, the way of the cross, the way of suffering as a Christian, uh, and then to resist the false teaching uh, that they had been subject to. So obviously for themes that we'll see as we work our way through will be uh, Paul's own sufferings and trials uh, and how they relate to Christ's suffering on the cross uh, as expressions of uh, his unity with Christ, uh, but also uh, we'll see the theme of uh, God's people and, and the, the end-time restoration of God's people that was prophesied in the prophets in the Old Testament and how Paul is going to show the Corinthian church that they are a part of that, 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 that the beginning of that restoration, that new creation has already begun. Even though the world itself has not been recreated, all those who are in Christ are a new creation. They're being remade into his image. And so uh, we'll see that as one of the themes that, that he covers as well. So if we were to outline this very simply, uh, obviously we have the greeting at the beginning and we have the, the benediction at the end. But other than that, uh, the, starting in chapter 1 and going through chapter 7, uh, we have seven chapters of Paul defending his ministry and his apostleship and addressing this idea of suffering as a minister of Christ. 
And then in chapters 8 and 9, we'll see him addressing that collection that he wants to take up for the saints in Judea. And then chapters 10 through 13, he is going to directly address the minority in the church that has not yet repented uh, of the issues that he had uh, called them to repent of. So, obviously, we had the greeting there where he addresses the church in Corinth and beyond. And then beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1, Paul begins to defend uh, his apostleship. And like I said, he's going to make note the fact that he, his suffering does not mean that his ministry is not blessed by God, but actually identifies him with Christ. And so he makes a point, uh, if we look at verse 5, uh, to, to point out that Christ himself suffered. And so he says in verse 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. So Christ suffered, uh, and so his followers suffer as well, following in the way of Christ, uh, but there is comfort and consolation that comes through Christ, uh, through Paul, to the church. So uh, this suffering is to be embraced because they can comfort one another uh, as they journey through life and deal with the various trials and tribulations that we all face. In verse 6, he points out the purpose for the suffering that we experience. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So the point is, uh, your suffering is not really about you. If you're suffering various things, this is God equipping you to be able to comfort other people who may suffer at different times than you. And we'll see this same idea brought up later uh, when he addresses the collection that he wants to take to the churches in Judea, to the poor saints in Judea. And he makes the point that he's not just wanting the church in Corinth to support these people, but they're in need now, so send a gift to them now, and then they can reciprocate when you're in need, and that's, the, that's how the church of Christ operates, that we comfort and support one another uh, when we're in need. Paul then uh, addresses in verse 12 uh, his, the integrity of his ministry. He says, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. So Paul is saying that uh, if he's going to boast of anything, he's not going to boast of the greatness of his ministry, but simply that he has a clear conscience before God uh, that he has conducted himself in a godly way before the eyes of the world and in his relationship to the church, that he has not sought his own good, but he has sought their good uh, for them uh, rather than trying to take advantage of them for his own personal gain. So Paul mentions here in verse 15 that he had uh, planned to visit them. He says, uh, in, in this confidence, I intend to come to you, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. So he had intended to come and visit the church in Corinth previously, uh, and then he didn't. Uh, his plans changed, but he makes the point of saying this doesn't mean that uh, he didn't change his plans because his heart changed towards them. He changed his plans for other reasons, but uh, the false teachers that were there 
uh, apparently were saying that Paul had changed his plans. He couldn't be trusted. Uh, he doesn't always follow through. He doesn't do what he says he's going to do. He doesn't have integrity. Uh, we don't know what he's doing. If he says yes, you don't know if that really means yes or if it means no. And Paul argues and defends himself and says, no, the reason I did not come to visit you at the time uh, was for your good. If we look down at verse 23, he says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. So he didn't come and visit them because there were so many of them uh, that were in this state of rebellion that needed to repent that he did not want to come to them and have to come uh, in a harsh way and confront them. And so he decided instead uh, to send them a letter rather than to visit them at that time so that when he did come to them, uh, he could do so in a more peaceful way where they could enjoy fellowship with one another rather than him having to come uh, and discipline them in person. So he changed his plans, but he did it for their benefit, uh, not because he didn't care about them. Uh, so he decided instead uh, to write them a letter. He says there in chapter 2, verse 3, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. So even this letter that he wrote to them, that some call the tearful letter or the severe letter, uh, he did it not because he just wanted to be harsh and mean with them, but because he loved them. Uh, he was reprimanding them, calling them to repentance. It was all for their good. And that's a, a recurring theme that we'll see throughout this letter that Paul is continually telling them, I did this for you. I did this for your benefit. This, I wasn't trying to take anything for myself from you. Everything I did was to edify and build up the church. Uh, and so he wrote this letter to them instead of visiting them in person. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin in his commentary actually says that uh, Paul chose rather to give them a longer time for repentance. Uh, that instead of visiting them, he sent them the letter and stayed away to give them more time uh, to repent before he actually came in person and would have to confront them in that way. So, obviously, if we think back to 1 Corinthians, that situation with the man who was in sin, that they were not doing anything about, uh, Paul, that was a, a big part of it, and Paul told them what to do to discipline him for the purpose of bringing him to repentance. Uh, and so now, he tells us that uh, that man has repented, and that it's time to, to bring him back into fellowship. And so uh, we see this here in chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11. Um, if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. 
Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So he's, he's urging them now to show love and grace uh, to this man. He has repented, so it's time to show forgiveness, uh, to bring him back into fellowship. If they continue uh, to exercise discipline after he has repented, then it's going to cause him grief uh, and Satan will actually get the upper hand. So since repentance has happened, then it's time to restore fellowship. Uh, And so Paul uh, uses this man, I think, as an example uh, because he's called the whole church to repent. And once that happens, then he's going to come and visit them again uh, so that their fellowship can be restored. Uh, Then in verses 12 through 14, uh, he gives another reason why he has delayed his visit, and that is that uh, this severe letter he had sent by the hand of Titus, uh, he wanted to hear from Titus directly uh, so that he would know the truth of the situation before he came to visit. And because he had not uh, found Titus, uh, he decided to delay his visit to them. Beginning in verse 14, going down through verse 17, he then shows how his ministry is consistent uh, with the ministry of Christ uh, because of his suffering. He says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one We are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So if Christ suffered, Christ died on the cross, then his ministers, his apostles, should look like Christ. They should be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Uh, And if these super apostles uh, are bragging that their ministry is great, they're not suffering, everything's going great for them, as we'll see a little later in the letter, then how does that smell like Christ who suffered for us? Uh, So Paul says his ministry is consistent with Christ's ministry. Uh, In chapter 3, he then uh, says that Some of these false teachers apparently had come with letters of recommendation from other churches uh, to kind of their credentials. And Paul says, I don't need a letter like that. I don't need those kind of credentials. You are my recommendation letter because Christ is at work in you. Uh, He has written the record on your hearts. Uh, He says in verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Uh, So he's saying that the Corinthians themselves are his letter of recommendation uh, for his ministry. Now he's also uh, bringing in language from the prophet Jeremiah, from chapter 31 of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah talks about the new covenant and how it will be written on the hearts of God's people. And so uh, Paul will continue to allude back to that passage throughout the rest of this letter as he shows uh, the church in Corinth that 
that new covenant is already at work in them, that they're being remade into the image of Christ uh, and that this suffering uh, that they might experience as he has experienced is part of that process uh, of making them into the image of Christ. So that passage in Jeremiah 31 uh, is an important one in his thought as he's writing this letter. He says in verses 4 through 6 that he had been commissioned by God to serve the new covenant just uh, in a similar way as how the prophets of old had been commissioned by God to serve the old covenant. And then he he begins to talk about the glory of the new covenant uh, in in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but if the ministry of death which by, by which he means the old covenant, uh, if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory and the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory, for even that what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So uh, the new covenant being made into the image of Christ is more glorious than the glory that reflected the reflected glory of God in Moses' face, which was temporary and passed away, just like the old covenant was temporary and passed away. And so the new covenant is lasting and we are being transformed uh, into the image of Christ. And so uh, he says in verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So it's not just... Lord's glory reflecting off the face of Moses in a temporary way that caused them to have to veil uh, him to veil his face, but the glory of Christ is actually reshaping us into his image. We're being transformed uh, into the image of Christ by the ministry of Christ in our hearts. In chapter 4, Paul then begins to explain how God is working through his ministry to bring the light of Christ to the Corinthians. He says in verses 5 and 6, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's making the point that uh, his ministry is all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. It's not about Paul. He's not making much of himself. He's seeking to make much of Christ uh, in them. And then he he says that uh, God works through the suffering that he has experienced uh, for his purposes. He says in verse 17, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. So the sufferings that Paul's experienced in his ministry are actually a good thing. Uh, If the Corinthians experience suffering, if you and I experience suffering, it's actually a good thing because it's working in us sanctification. It's working in us to prepare us uh, for the glories that we'll know uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. In chapter 5, uh, he begins to speak about our transformation uh, that, that he's mentioned here, but that it won't be complete until we receive our glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. 
For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And so he goes on to describe how we shouldn't groan over our present suffering. We shouldn't groan over this earthly body. But if we're going to to groan about something, it should be in longing for the glory that is to come. Down in verse 12, Uh, He then says that his opponents, the false teachers, these so-called super apostles, uh, are boasting in something else. He says, for we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. So so the contrast here is that the false teachers, these false apostles, are boasting in appearances. They're talking about the the glory of their ministry, how big it is, how great it is, uh, the great things that they have achieved. Uh, But Paul says they're looking at the outward rather than looking at the spiritual reality that is happening. And so he urges uh, the Corinthians to look beyond the physical uh, to the spiritual and to walk by faith and not by sight. He says in verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so he's encouraging them to see with spiritual eyes, uh, to think about uh, these ministries, not just looking at the outward, but actually looking at the heart, looking at uh, the relation to uh, Christ Uh, Again, he's alluding to uh, this idea of the new creation and the new covenant uh, from Jeremiah 31 and that it is being fulfilled now uh, in believers when he says that um, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So that new creation that the prophet spoke about, it's already begun Uh, in the regeneration of the hearts of believers as we're transformed into the image of Christ. That new creation is already uh, beginning to become a reality. In verse 20, Paul then says that uh, the means of partaking in this new creation is through Christ. He says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, So the only way to participate in this new creation is to be reconciled to God. And that only happens through Jesus Christ, uh, who took our sin on himself, that his righteousness might be applied to us, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Our standing is rooted in Christ alone, not in the standards of this world, not in what we can see with our eyes, but in the spiritual reality uh, that is found in Christ. In chapter 6, Paul then uh, begins to talk about uh, the marks of his ministry, uh, and he quotes here from Isaiah chapter 49. He says, we then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain for he says in an acceptable time i have heard you and in the day of salvation i have helped you 
Now this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 49, which is about the suffering servant uh, who is Christ. And if we look at this quote in context, we would read this. Now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and may God, my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritage. So, this is a, a prophecy from Isaiah about the suffering servant who is Christ. And Paul says that he is working together with Christ uh, to and his ministry is closely aligned with Christ, and that is the reason that he suffers in the same way that Jesus did. And so he's pleading with the church not to have received the grace of God in vain, but to recognize these realities. He then, in verses 3 through 10, gives some examples of the type of suffering that he has experienced. And we're all familiar with this, where he talks about, you know, the tribulations and the, the stripes, the imprisonments, uh, all these various things that Paul has suffered uh, in the course of his ministry. Then interestingly, he transitions from this discussion of his suffering alongside Christ uh, to telling the Corinthians, exhorting the Corinthians in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? Now, he's not suddenly changed topics and all of a sudden talking about marriage, although uh, that obviously would apply to marriage as well. But this is, he's talking about all of life, uh, that if the Corinthians are believers, if they are in Christ, the Christian church then, in its union with Christ, uh, cannot be yoked with unbelievers. We cannot look at the world in the same way that unbelievers look at the world. And so then he quotes again from the Old Testament in in verse 16. He says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So he says, the church is the temple of God. And he's quoted here uh, from Leviticus chapter 26, but also again from Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37, uh, where this same promise is made. And he's, what he's telling the Corinthian church is those prophecies in the Old Testament concerning uh, the rebuilding of the temple, the reestablishment of Israel after their Babylonian captivity, those things are fulfilled in you. The church is the temple of God. And so that restoration is taking place in you. And then in verse 17, he says, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. 
I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now again, he's quoting from multiple passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 52, uh, Ezekiel 20, Exodus 29. Um, But he's talking about the Old Testament priesthood. Uh, The priests who served in the temple uh, were not to touch unclean things. They were to be holy so that they could serve in the temple. And so Paul's point is, if the church is the temple of the living God, then All of the saints who are part of the church uh, should live holy lives. They are priests to God serving in the temple. And so they are to live holy lives. Uh, Richard Barcelos, Reformed Baptist pastor out in California, I've heard him say this multiple times, that uh, in passages like this, that the church is the eschatological Israel of Old Testament prophecy. When the Old Testament prophets are prophesying about the restoration of Israel, the rebuilding of the temple, that those prophecies are actually fulfilled in the church. Uh, The church is the temple. Uh, The saints are the restored priesthood. And that's why we are called to be holy. Therefore, he says in chapter 7, verse 1, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So that's his conclusion. If, if the church is the temple and we are all priests in the temple, uh, then we need to act like it. We need to live holy lives in the fear of God uh, because that is our identity. Paul uh, then relates here in chapter 7 that he eventually did uh, connect with Titus and hear a report of their repentance and that he was encouraged by that. Uh, And then he says in verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. So he's saying that was hard for me to write that, that letter. It was so severe. I regretted that I had to write it. But it was for your good, and you repented after you read that letter. So ultimately, I'm not sorry. I don't regret having written the letter because it brought you to repentance. Uh, then in verse 12, uh, he says, the purpose of that letter, he says, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So that, that letter to reprove them and to call them to repentance was about more than just that individual man who had been caught in sin, more than just about the person he had sinned against. It was for the benefit of the whole church. It was for that they might see that he loved them, that he cared for them, uh, and that he was trying to shepherd the entire church uh, to, to benefit. So again, Paul's ministry was not uh, about himself. It was about serving the church. In chapters 8 and 9, then Paul moves on to talk about uh, this collection for the saints in Judea uh, who are suffering because of famine and persecution. Uh, and again, like I said, mentioned earlier, verse 13 and 14, he says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, So he says, I'm not not just trying to make it easy on them and lay this heavy burden on you, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Well, there he's quoting uh, from Exodus when the children of Israel were gathering manna in the wilderness, uh, and he's saying the church of God, even though it's in separate locations in Corinth and in Judea, 
We're all part of the universal church, and so we should be supporting one another, uh, caring for one another. If we have an abundance, we care for those who are in need. If they have an abundance, they care for us when we're in need. Uh, And that's what the life of the church and the love of Christ at work among us looks like. And he goes on to tell them that this is a chance. Uh, This collection that he's taking up is an opportunity for them to prove that their repentance is genuine, uh, that they've been reconciled to Paul and that they will take part uh, in this collection that he's gathering. He says in verse 24, Therefore show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of your boasting, our boasting on your behalf. Uh, So this is an opportunity for them to prove the genuineness uh, of their repentance. In chapter 9, he continues to talk about the gift and talk about the fact that uh, they should give generously and not grudgingly. Some of these are verses we're very familiar with. Uh, He says in verse 5, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, So before he had reprimanded them, apparently, at some time in the past, they had promised to participate uh, in this collection that he was taking, and he wants them to do so, but not because they feel obligated because of their previous promise, but because they genuinely are generous and loving towards others in the body of Christ. Uh, Then we have a verse here, if we look down at verse 10, that has been uh, misused quite a bit. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Obviously, prosperity gospel people have used this verse to talk about sowing a seed and you'll get multiplied back to you many times. But what is Paul obviously talking about here? Uh, he, He says that multiply the seed that you have sown. Well, multiply that seed, you've sown it to someone else's benefit and increase the fruits of your righteousness. He's talking about your sanctification. You're being transformed into the image of Christ. He's not talking about you sending in $100 and then God's going to miraculously give you $1,000 next week. No, he's saying God's going to take that $100 and use it to bless somebody else and you're going to be sanctified. Your righteousness is going to bear fruit in your own life as you are transformed into the image of Christ uh, by this act of benevolence that you have generously uh, given for others. Moving on then to chapter 10, we move into this last section of the letter where Paul now addresses those uh, within the church at Corinth who still may remain unrepentant uh, and may still be following uh, these false teachers, these so-called super apostles. And so he reminds them uh, of the spiritual reality that they're facing. Uh, He says in chapter 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Uh, So, again, he's trying to get them to recognize that these false apostles are focusing on the outward uh, aspects 
of their own glory and their own ministry. And he wants them to see the spiritual reality. And so he tells them in verse 7, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. So he's saying, don't look at the outward appearance. If you think that you really are a Christian, that you're in Christ, then consider this entire situation again. Look at Paul's ministry, consider the things he has said about his ministry, and recognize that his ministry more closely resembles the ministry of Christ than does the super apostles. Uh, He says that um, one of the accusations that has been brought against him uh, is that he says in verse 10, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will be also indeed when we are present. So he sent them this severe letter to reprimand them. And people say, well, yeah, he writes, he talks tough in his letters, but when he's here, he's, he's gentle. He's not that tough. And he's saying, well, I don't want to be that tough when I'm with you in person. I I want us to be reconciled to one another. But if I have to be rough when I get there, I will be. But I don't want to be. The false teachers, uh, though, are boasting about their ministry and about themselves. And so in verse 12, he says, For we dare not compare ourselves, uh, class ourselves, or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. So he said they're comparing themselves, comparing their ministry to somebody else's ministry in order to brag about how great their ministry is. And he says that's that's not uh, wisdom. He says down in verse 17, But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord, For for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So instead of boasting about their own accomplishments, uh, they should be boasting and glorying in Christ. Uh, and if God commends someone, then that's what counts, not that they commend themselves. Paul fears that some of them are still being deceived, though, by these false teachers. He says there in chapter 11, verse 3, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So he, he's afraid that, that they are going to be deceived, just as Eve was in the garden. In verses 12 through 15, uh, Paul then says some pretty harsh things about these false teachers. He says, But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. So uh, they want an opportunity to be regarded as apostles. uh, But he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, do you want to say something harsh about somebody? He just called them ministers of Satan. That's that's pretty harsh. 
they're false apostles. They want the church to see them as having apostolic authority, but he said they weren't sent by Christ. They were sent by Satan. They're sowing division. They're, they're not teaching the true gospel. Uh, and so that, that's a pretty harsh uh, judgment to pass on someone. Paul then says, uh, since, since you're so uh, enamored by their boasting, let me boast for you uh, about my ministry. And, and so then Paul is going to boast about his ministry, but he's, he's not going to boast about how great his ministry is. He's going to boast about uh, what he has suffered for Christ. Uh, and so then he talks there at the end of chapter 11 uh, about the stripes, the imprisonments, uh, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, all these things that he has been through. He's not boasting about his great accomplishments, about the number of people who he's, have gotten saved or that he's baptized or this great thing that he accomplished. He's boasting about the suffering that he has endured uh, for the sake of taking the gospel to the nations. He's boasting in the way of the cross rather than uh, in outward appearances. In chapter 12, he then uh, talks about visions and revelations. He says, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then he uh, relates uh, about a man, probably speaking about himself, uh, who did have visions and revelation from God. Uh, But then he says in verse 5, of such a one I, I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And so then Paul goes on to talk about his thorn in the flesh, uh, to boast in his weakness, and the fact that he had pled with God to take this thing away from him. We don't know what it is, uh, whatever this thorn in the flesh is, uh, but he pleaded with God three times. In verse 9 he says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul then says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So instead of boasting in himself and in his own accomplishments, he wants to boast in what Christ has done in him and through him uh, for the sake of the churches. And so he will only boast in his weakness. Uh, Paul then mentions that he is planning uh, to come visit them a third time. He's made two previous visits uh, to the church in Corinth. He says in verse 14, Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome for you, to you, for I do not seek yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. So uh, he views himself as a spiritual father to them. They are the children. He says, I'm not coming uh, in order that you can uh, give me your money that you can support my ministry. I'm coming so that I can serve you uh, as the father uh, lays up things for his children and doesn't intend for the children to support him. So he plans this third visit to come uh, visit them. And he makes the point that it's not just Paul himself. It's the other men that he has trained who are part of his uh, ministry, uh, Titus particularly, that Uh, He mentions Titus in verse 18 uh, and some others that he says in verse 19 again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God and Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. So it's not just Paul himself. It's those that he has trained, other workers, his apostolic assistants, Timothy, Titus, and others that he has sent to them. He hasn't sent them 
to the church in Corinth so that the church in Corinth can uh, give them a life of luxury. He has sent them there as servants uh, to serve the church uh, and to edify the church, not to seek their own glory. But then he warns them at the beginning of chapter 13 that when he comes, uh, that he is, if those who are unrepentant still, uh, will be dealt with. He says, this will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Uh, so he's saying, when I come, those who have not yet repented will be dealt with face to face. And it won't be pleasant. I don't want to have to do that. Uh, but... If I have to, I will. And then in verse 5, he says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. So he's telling them, like, examine. Are you even a Christian? If you're still unrepentant, if you're refusing at this point to repent of these things he has called them to repent of, then they need to examine whether or not Christ is even in them. Uh, and he assures them that Christ is in him and that he has told them the truth. At the end of the letter then, he urges them uh, in verse 11, Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. So he urges them to unity uh, in the church, uh, to set aside the strife and the division and the factions uh, that have been the cause of so much of the trouble there. And he closes in verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So he gives them uh, a greeting, a benediction from uh, the Trinity. Paul's ministry uh, he has argued, is genuine because of his suffering for the gospel. Uh, his suffering is not a mark against his ministry, uh, but rather shows his union with Christ, uh, that he suffers the same way as Christ, who was the suffering servant. He uh, has argued that the church is the beginning of the outworking of the new creation and that they must embrace their identity and live accordingly. And he has made the point that in this age, we live in the already not yet, where that new heavens and that new earth has begun. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and yet it has not been completely consummated. Uh, and so we have to have spiritual discernment. We have to walk by faith and not by sight. We can't judge matters but merely based on outward appearances. We must judge rightly, uh, discerning the spirit of Christ at work in ministries. And he has argued that Repentance is a true mark of the Christian, uh, much as Martin Luther uh, said in his 95 Theses that uh, the life of a Christian is the life of repentance. And so he says, if you have not repented, you need to examine whether or not Christ is even in you. Because if Christ is in you, you would have repented. Uh, and so he's encouraged them that the majority of them have repented. And so he's eager to restore uh, their fellowship and to have joy when he comes. But those that have not repented, he says, you need to examine carefully whether or not you're in the faith. Because that is what it looks like to be a Christian, is to repent of your sins and to be transformed into that image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next. Let's pray.